Oh my god, do you know what it is? Uh, Thursday? Yes, but do you know what episode of Digital Noise this is? Uh, the one we're recording? Yes, but do you know what makes it special? You? Well, yeah, but I'm on most of them, so... Aww. Uh, they're all a little special, but no! It's the first one in October! Don't Yay! And you know what that means? Horroween! Horroween! Yay! Lots and lots of horror that will be of decidedly mixed quality. Aw, but you know what there always is? What? That's a good point. Mm. Hey, and welcome to Digital Noise. As I previously said, we're really excited because it is October, which means we have a slew of horror for you. And we'll continue to have all through the month, which makes me so happy. I'm Chris. I'm Richard. And we are going to knock out a whole shit ton of titles today. An insane number. uh, And so many, and we have so little time to do it that we're actually not going to have time for the letterbox this week. And I apologize, because I know a lot of you guys love the letterbox. We love the letterbox, too. Blame me. We may actually do a special special letterbox addendum later in the week, just because we love it so much. (laughs) Oh, great. Now you tell me. (laughs) But uh, without without any further ado, because I quite frankly have had enough ado. I've just got to do all over the fucking place. You got some on your face as well. Oh, shit. Is that what that is? Uh, we're going to move into the reviews. And let's get started with uh, one of the odder little zombie titles that I've seen in a while, if only because somebody said, hey, let's make a mumblecore zombie film, The Battery. Uh, well, I'm going to uh, straight off the bat say that uh, this is uh, one of my picks of the week because I, I can't have one pick of the week this week because it's There's too good a too week. Many it's just, and the, the quality is so high. Um, this was, uh, I think it's like a $8,000 budget. It's basically two guys roaming through Connecticut some abstract point after the uh, the zombie apocalypse has, ha- has hit uh, and they're a pair of minor league baseball players. Yeah. So they're, you know, one is a schlubby catcher... Um, uh, played by played by the, uh, the director and writer Jeremy Gardner. It kind of looks like like a more serious Zach uh, Gala- uh, Galifianakis. Galifianakis. Um, I still can't say that guy's yeah. name. <laughs> um, and uh, the other guy, uh, Adam Cronheim, uh, is a you know, he's a he's a pitcher. So they're, they're kind of two guys who don't really have much in common. But yeah. or, you know, they, they didn't even know each other well before all this went down. They no, just you, circumstances threw them together, and you get this feeling of like, okay, this is this is how they're surviving. Um, and it's, you know, it is about two personalities stuck in a horrible environment, one of whom is just this kind of big schlub, uh, kind of fairly merciless about it, uh, on his on his friend and, uh, you know, going, like, we do what we need to do to kill huh. and to survive, and that's it, and we're going to get through this. And his friend who is, you know, still thinks there's, there's some hope that civilization will, will come back. But this is all done in a very subdued, low-key, I mean, you use the word mumblecore, and somewhere out there I think I heard, you know, Joe Swanberg uh, sharpening a knife. Um, uh, I'm it, sorry. It has those qualities. It has, the, it has those qualities. Um, but it's so well observed. I mean, this is, you, you, there's a great moment where it answers a question that you always wondered about what would happen in the zombie, uh, zombie apocalypse, about when do you get to spend some personal time, uh-huh. shall we say? And it is a phenomenal scene. I, you know, it, it's Very gruesome funny. and creepy. Um, very awkward. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, you know, it's one of those films that says, okay, 
this isn't about, you know, we're going to wander off into the, into the distance and then we'll find the solutions to everything. This is about the other guys, the people who don't make it to, they're, to, to, uh, to Woodsboro. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're basically two slackers. Yeah. You know, in made of wood. They really just want to get back to watching TV and drinking beer and just having a regular, ordinary guy life. And, one of them, the, the skinnier guy, Adam, is in total denial yeah. about the situation. Doesn't he, like, he literally walks around with headphones on everywhere while his friend does all, handles all the killing. He's the proactive one. And their relationship, while seemingly it works in its way, starts to disintegrate at one point when, when, uh, Jeremy decides he's had enough and basically throws a zombie in the room with Adam. Yeah. Cause in here, these are the very slow, stupid as shit zombies that, like, one guy versus one zombie, you probably won't have that much trouble dealing with the situation. Particularly if you've got a baseball bat. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you can handle it, okay? You just gotta man up and do it. And it's interesting watching how their relationship, like, quickly disintegrates after that. But if I have a criticism of this film, like, I mean, I will say, as a character piece, it's actually really interesting. And there are some neat little moments, like the, the, the personal time thing. We <laughs> which is, which is just earlier. One of those scenes that you've all, you've always thought, it's gotta happen at some point. Somebody right. has to dare to take this on. And there's quite a few moments like that where they, they, they deal with stuff where you go, well, isn't this how it would really work? And I think they've thought through the logic of a zombie apocalypse a lot better than others. But sorry, that's true. That's true. I mean, of this specific type of zombie apocalypse, to be sure. Um, and I think ultimately it, it, it's more interesting as a character film, uh, in the context of a situation than it is as a zombie film because it doesn't, you know, on the whole, doesn't really add a lot new to the zombie genre. It doesn't, it's not grabbing for that either. No. It's really about the relationship between these two guys and what they're doing. And there are fun sequences in the middle of it, but it's slow moving. It's, you know, at times even a little plotting. Uh, and uh, by the end, I was like, <laughs> zombie plotting. <laughs> right. It's, yeah. By the end, I was like, okay. I guess it, it ties into this whole thing where like, you know, Adam is lonely, wants to meet other people and they find the existence of other survivors out there who have, are that group that have formed a, a coalition and want nothing to do with these guys. <laughs> and Adam just doesn't want to accept it. And all this ties in back to the end. And, you know, you can't have a zombie film without a bleak ending these days, unless it says Zomcom. <laughs> well, I, but I think the ending actually, uh, no, no spoilers here at all, but it, it d depends what you define as, as bleak because there's this question of, you know, was Adam in the wrong to think that you can ever rebuild civilization? You know, it, it's about that clash of who is right. But I think this is, it's a character study. And I think, I think there's been a series of films recently, Revelation Trail, which we reviewed recently, mm -hmm. um, Dead Weight, uh, which another great relationship zombie, relationship against the background of zombiedom. Uh, and I think it fits into that genre. And yes, I mean, there's, there's a lot of these road trip zombie movies out there, but I think this, you know, that's like saying, well, there's a lot of action movies. I mean, it's huh. such a big, it, you know, it, it's a context to put these, these, these questions into. And you could, at this point, you could do one of these films without even ever seeing a zombie. That's it's true. It's just about putting people I think someone's actually done that. I think fair. that would work. Um, oh, yes. Um, and yeah. it's screened here, it's screened in Austin recently, and I can't remember. my tongue, can't remember yeah, what it is. Yeah, it will, it will come back, it will come to me at some point. Uh, but on the whole, I did enjoy this film, and it is definitely has a feeling and a tone that's different from any other zombie movie you've seen. Also comes with some extras. There's uh, a really in-depth piece on the making of it, uh, which is very... You know, 
it's light in the sense that everybody's joking around, having a good time, so it's kind of funny. Uh, there's outtakes as well, like 11 minutes of outtakes, which is more than you expect from a little indie zombie. Like a, it's $6,000 budgeted zombie film. Yeah. Which actually looks great. The zombie oh, yeah. effects are all terrific. Uh, they th- called in a lot of favors from a lot of friends. There's a commentary with a writer, director, and actors and producer. Well, pretty much everybody who made the film, the commentary with them. And then there's a, a reunion of one of the bands providing music for the film. Yeah, uh, Rock Plaza Central, uh, uh, Jeremy Gardner's a huge fan and actually told me when I spoke to him recently that he actually wrote most of the soundtrack listening to them. And he, he cut the first trailer using one of their songs. Mm. And uh, the band heard about this and went, that's great. And he went, can we use some more stuff? And they went, oh, whatever you want. And they introduced him to other bands who were, just went, you know, use whatever you want. Uh, and he said the important lesson from this is, if you're an independent filmmaker and you want to use some independent music on your soundtrack, ask. Because there's a good possibility they'll say yes. Because yeah. gets there, get, you know, I never heard of Rock Plaza Central before this, and now I have. Well, there you go. There you go. It seems smart to me. Yeah. I'm going to call up the Rolling Stones right now. They're, I, I, they're a little indie band, right? I, well, I, I hear they do. They do have a taste for blues. Um, oh, there you go. See, and also massive amounts of, of chemicals in the 1980s. No longer. Oh well, I have all this ado here. Isn't that like a street for cocaine? Again, on your face. Oh, okay. Uh, anyway, going from a little in, uh, indie horror that's recent to a little indie horror that's not recent and considered to be by many one of the greatest horror films ever made. You know why they consider it that? Why do they? Because it is. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, now out on Blu-ray in the 40th Anniversary Collector's Edition. Now, the version they sent me was the single-disc edition Uh of this, which only comes with four commentaries, but four really... You just used the word, only comes with four commentaries. Well, when you you get the multi-disc edition, it's just... Oh, it's a two-disc edition that has, like, a ridiculous amount of shit in it. You know, just, like, so many new extra features. And I was like... And there's also a Black Mariah edition Which Which I actually have, which comes with a bloody uh, uh, butcher's smock. Oh, nice. Uh, And it's actually in a uh, cardboard replica photo accurate of the of the semi from the end which was owned by the guy that drove it in the film Ed Gwynn oh, no who kidding. I recently got to interview if you if you guys have got some time uh, this week's Austin Chronicle I have a huge interview with a load of the people who are involved with the making of the film and uh, yeah they, they when they were doing this box set they called up Ed Gwynn and said can we get loads of photos so we can make this right this is an incredible incredible set for a film that really deserves it this is the uh, 4k restoration that Dark Sky did earlier in the year um, you know, there is there are details in this restoration you have literally never seen before because they've gone back to the original 16 mil neg, um, and you know Bob Burns set dressing it is just unreal. It's just so good, and for a film that is for many people for decades has lived as you know kind of bleached out ruby red drive-in beaten to death print you have never seen this film look so good i you know, oh, I, it, I, I don't i don't say that about restorations often but this really is an amazing restoration i've seen it uh, this movie a ton of times and i've never seen a copy that like even you know previous fix-ups that didn't look like they weren't 40 years old or so yeah. uh and this one looks fresh and fantastic and like i said i only got the single disc version uh the four tracks on there i actually listened to the first one which is with uh the writer producer director toby hooper uh gunner hansen who played leatherface and the cinematographer daniel pearl and it was fantastic it was so funny and informative how is it that i never like 
grokked that John Larroquette is reading the opening title. Yes. <laughs> never, just never put that together in my head. And in fact, they talk about how they told him specifically to try and sound like Orson Welles. And they're like, yeah, but he totally failed because he just sounds like John Larroquette. <laughs> Drunk John Larroquette. <laughs> no, I mean, and you go through, I mean, the, the two disc edition is, is super loaded with, um, an amazing number of of, uh, of extras. If you, it, ooh, sorry, I get the Fantastic Fest crud is still oh, hanging still around. still bring it up. Yeah. Uh, but if you get the Black Mariah set, there is an additional disc which has William Friedkin and Toby Hooper just doing a a conversation with each other, which is unmissable. Uh, it is one of the nuttiest pieces of, of just two veterans of the genre just yammering at each other coming up with war stories. I mean, you know, Friedkin kind of dominates it, but that's Friedkin. Um, yeah, that's worth shelling out the money for the Black Mariah edition <laughs> just right there, and that's well, the only place you can get I it. I mean, and there's all the original stuff that came with the last, uh, you know, release of this, but there's also a lot of new stuff. I mean, the old one came with deleted scenes and outtakes. This has 15 minutes more deleted scenes and outtakes, but there was no production audio, so it's like, okay, that's we're including this in here because we're trying to be as completist as humanly possible here, but... Yeah, this is a phenomenal set. This is the definitive version of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. If you have never seen this movie, let me just say that, like, if you're like, oh, I don't really watch gory, really gory movies, there's almost no gore in this yeah. film. Like, I, like it's all in your head. And, in fact, at one point they say, we used two ounces of blood on this movie. Two ounces. Yeah. Like, the one scene where you really see any blood at all, they were literally had a cup of it and were flicking it with their finger at Leatherface. It's like, okay, that's not very much blood. This is this is a masterpiece in, in tension cinema. It's, a, it's, a, it's like Reservoir Dogs. People see it, and they think they saw something extremely gruesome and horrible take place. Yeah. And in the, in the moments of, of actual on-screen violence, they're so tiny. And in such micro edits that mostly you don't actually really see anything. This is this is a masterpiece of mood and tone. Toby Hooper was saying in the commentary how he's actually gotten into multiple arguments with people who insist that this is the goriest movie ever made. Yeah. Like that's how they remember it. Yeah. And like, that's a testament to its power. It really is. It's a very truly frightening film. Um, that that is still really scary after all these years. None of the sequels or anything else have lived up to it. I mean, I did think the first remake of it was pretty darn good, all things considered, but not this. No. Uh, highly recommend. In fact, this is my pick of the week, even though they didn't send me the Black Mariah edition. Yeah, this it's is still... I think this is tied as well because this is this is a true classic. And if you haven't seen it, if you don't own it, this is the edition to own because yeah. I I honestly don't see any any way they can. Do something that's going to beat this. Unless you, they actually send you a copy that comes with Toby Hooper attached. This is as good as it gets. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you think they're going to put that out? <sighs> Gunnar Hansen personally delivers it to your door in full. And reads a poem to you. Yeah. Because he's a poet. Well, as he, long as he's wearing, actually, he is actually a published poet. As long as he's wearing the grandma mask and not the leather face mask, I'm good. <laughs> All right. Well, moving back. From indie horror from a long time ago to indie horror from recently, we're looking at what I'm sure is one of Richard's other ties for best film of the week, which is oh god, you just you just throwing the just throwing the gems at me this way. I oh. uh found a 2012 horror film where you saw this where you saw this. Last... I saw this at the Housecore Horror Film Festival okay. last year, and again, micro budget. Uh, this was thirty thousand uh, dollars. It's by a first time, first time director called Scott Shermer. It is based on a novel, 
that was published through a basically DIY publish it yourself company that he, that Scott Sherman was working for. And, uh, I got to interview him last year and, and he told me the story, which is he, he picked this up and it had this incredible cover of like, of a, a white skull and a black background. And normally like, you know, what they're getting sent is family recipe books. And he's like, this looks a bit weird. And he opens it up and this, and the first line, and it's also the first line in the film is, uh, my brother keeps a human head in his closet. <laughs> Every so often it changes. This is about a boy whose brother, is a, a serial killer. Yeah, it's my brother, Henry, the portrait, portrait of a serial yeah. killer. This is the most dysfunctional family you can imagine. Yeah. This is what it's about. This is about how does somebody contend with pure evil in their home? Um, it is a commentary about why we watch horror, what we find exciting about horror, what we find disturbing about horror, uh, while being a very, very effective horror film at the same time. There's no... There's no, aren't we being coy? There's no, there's no, no screamism here. This is about a kid who, he watches horror films, he loves horror films, but he realizes that, you know, he, his brother, the one person he feels he can really trust in the world, is a monster. And there is no happy ending here. This is as bleak a piece of cinema as you're going to see. There is nothing joyous. And not just bleak, but really disturbing on a, Creepy uh, level. Yeah. The Australia Bandit for quote prolonged and de detailed depictions of sexualized violence. Yeah, I mean, there's a sequence where the brother is walking around completely naked with a hard on and a gas mask, wearing a gas mask and covered in blood. Yeah, you're like, okay, that was something I hoped never to see. Yeah, this will stick with you. I mean, this is not this is not for everyone. No. I am seriously saying this. No, this like, is not for the casual horror viewer. No. This, this is, is for the experienced horror viewer who really is looking for something different, for something that is honestly very thoughtful and breaking new ground. All that being said, I know we disagree on some one level of this yeah. film, which is that I I thought – I, I loved this movie. I did. I loved it. But – and I could say this as well about any number of horror films from the 80s that I totally loved – I thought the acting was even below substandard across the board. You know, you agree with me about the adults, but thought yeah. the kids... Yeah, the, 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 the adults are uh, very much... I thought the kids were great. Uh, you know, the, the, younger the younger brother is... Uh, you know, you're supposed to regard him as deeply traumatized. Yeah, um, as you would be. And he has, you know, he has this, this, you know, kind of broken, sullen attitude. His brother just has this air of... of it's beyond anger. There is... There is pure venom in this boy and that is it is for me that really worked i mean I, again for some people it's not going to but for me i you know, i really found this a a very powerful and effective movie uh i am a little bit astonished it got a it got distribution because i know that they were struggling a little bit to try and find somebody i am really really glad that it has it had a, a great festival run uh amongst hardened horror fans um you know i this, this is one of these films again that proves you can take zero money and do something really really i mean our first three films are like zero budget horror films right and they you know i think this has intellect and and heart and passion and it does not sell the audience short at any one point and the final image is something that yeah. will just that'll stick with you it really will it's funny though like whereas that is the most disturbing image in the film Earlier on, you get to see the kid who discovers the film that sort of inspired his brother to be a serial killer called Headless, which is, has one of the most 
prolonged, disturbing, gory sequences I've seen in any movie ever. Yeah. It's, like, right up there with Fulci, like, in terms of, like, I never really wanted to see this. Yeah. But it sets the tone really well. And, in fact... Like, there, there's enough of it in there, and there's a, you see little bits of another film, like a cheap uh, creature from the Black Lagoon knockoff the kids are watching. One of the extras they put on this is the complete versions of those two miniature films that they shot, which are not slouching. And Headless is 27 minutes long. Yeah. Like, on this as an extra. Uh, the other one is like, is like six minutes or something. It's just silly. Uh, but apparently they just announced they're they're expanding headless into a full feature. It's going to be a full feature. They <laughs> didn't they didn't Indiegogo campaign. I mean that is really I mean, that's going to be you know midnight schlock. And they they've said it's going to be midnight schlock. That's really yeah. driven by the effects guys rather than uh, than Scott Shermer. I am fascinated to see what what Shermer can possibly do after this because this is you know I don't think he probably shouldn't do another horror film. Right. He should do something different because this is is uh, just a rom com. Yeah. Something. <laughs> this is so out there, it's going to be very hard for him to, I think, follow yeah. up with well, anything that's not going to go, well, it ain't as good as found. It's like the music thing. They say you got your whole life to come up with your first mi- album, and you get two years to come up with your second. Uh, this also has a audio commentary by the director and the author of the original novel, Todd Rigney. It's actually for a tiny little indie release. It's a pretty nice collection of bonus features that they have on yeah. here, like the, exactly the type of thing you would want, and I recommend this fully. Like I said, despite my problems with the acting... I mean, you guys know if you're horror aficionados, there are other, I mean, especially if you love Italian horror, there's lots of Italian of horror <laughs> movies that are great movies with just piss poor acting. I don't, wouldn't go so far as to call it piss poor here, but I kept imagining as I was watching this, if they had actually had the money to assemble a better cast for it, how much mo- even more powerful and disturbing it would have been. But, oh, you'd never sleep. Yeah. You'd never sleep. Maybe the, maybe that was the, the the tipping point where they realized, you know, this was like opening up the Necronomicon if you were to do that. We've yeah. got to do this for just uh, with crappy actors or people will die. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's move back again in the indie horror world to See, another... Halloween. I love this month so much. Exactly. To another classic, cons- another film considered one of the greatest horror films ever made, and then all the sequels. Halloween! The complete collection on Blu-ray, which now, this is becoming more and more common now with stuff. They did it with Nightmare on Elm Street, they did it with uh, uh, Friday the 13th, and now Halloween, which yeah. I, th- I think, like, it's hard to... Like, I mean, I certainly wouldn't put Friday the 13th versus either one of those other two as terms of best first film, but, uh, Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street both had those two unforgettable, absolutely terrifying first films that spawned a lot of nowhere near as good films. <laughs> uh, but if they both affected you the way they did me, you want them anyway. Yeah. And there are some good ones in the lot. I mean, I'm certainly not dismissing the, all the sequels to both these films. There are some good ones, just they never get to the quality level of the original. I mean, come on, how could they? Uh, but this, yeah, Halloween, Halloween 2, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, Halloween... Well, basically six, the curse of Michael Myers and the producer's cut of on a separate disc of Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers, which is controversial because for the longest time it was only available online. And even apparently in the commentary is pretty much them just going, I can't believe they actually released this, <laughs> uh, uh, which fans for years have said this is the producer's cut is the one to see. It's, yeah. it's a thousand times better. I've not seen it. I've heard from people who have. Yes, it's better. No, it's still not a good movie. <laughs> but, you know, what are you going to do? Halloween 
H2O, 20 years later, which marked the return of Jamie Lee Curtis and And the leaving of people from watching the franchise. Uh, Halloween Resurrection. Uh, Halloween, the, the, uh, uh, Rob Zombie remake and Halloween Two, the sequel to the Rob Zombie remake. Yeah, I, no, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go out my controversial limb again and uh, and say you know <coughs> if if you were gonna ask me the order of, uh, the order of of, wait, of ones to watch on this, I would say it one two uh, the remakes one and two and then three because three is so completely gonzo and nothing to do with the rest of the franchise. Uh, I like the zombie remakes. I, I I will stand by that. I think they're they're a great okay. way of saying let's let's completely reimagine this. Let's say what what would this be like in the real world? This falls for me under the rule of why origin stories don't work. Like this is the the Pat Oswalt bag of rock salt joke. This is like I don't really want to know more about a young Michael Myers. I don't. I don't care. I like him as the shape that we don't know anything about. That is much more frightening than a Michael Myers. We have details about his personality and his history. I, but I, I thought the fact that he, that he actually goes into real detail is such a fascinating different take, rather than it just going, I'm incredibly evil, which worked the first time around. And I, you know, and I don't, I, I, you know, I don't think it takes anything away from those. I think they're, I think they're really interesting movies in their own right. Uh, three, I think, is just, you know. You almost don't want to have it in this box set because it's nothing to do with the rest of the films because you're yeah. really thinking, well, this is well, n- not continuous in the series in any way, shape, or form. But that was the original plan: was they were not, go- you know, they were going to do a, a series of films. And, they were going to come out at Halloween and, every year, and they were not going to be interrelated. The, the commentary on that one, I believe, is them talking a lot about what the original plan was, some of the ideas for future films, which I think was a solid idea. The problem is, is once you get a brand inside people's heads. They don't want to be turned from it. Nope. And that's exactly what happened because I think Halloween 3 is a solid little horror film. Oh, yeah. Completely. People still talk shit about it to this day. And I'm like, obviously, you were old enough to see it when it came out and be one of those people who were really disappointed. Silver Shamrock. I, I really like Halloween 3 a lot. I, in fact, I like Somewhere it. Somewhere Adam Green just came, by the way. I like it better than any of the sequels except Halloween 2. Yeah. Uh, like, easily. But. People want Michael Myers, so there you go. Yeah, and you get him. Yeah, you do definitely get him. And the thing is about the set is, like, it's the it's the exact same encoding as previous releases of the, of these films that have been put out. It's which are a mixed bag from really good to just okay to a few that are not that great at all. Of course, the producer's cut is the first time ever put out, which apparently has excellent uh, quality, but I have not actually watched it. It has no extra features though. Um, and, uh, there's, you know, a lot, all the, I mean, it's the original disc, so it's all the extra features that actually came with those discs. So what you're ultimately getting is just a repackaged set of all the stuff that's already plus, been released. Plus, uh, at some point they're going to re- obviously release these all separately because this is a limited edition. So at some point they're going to go, well, let's put six out because there's going to be a lot of people who, who are just going to want to see producers cuts of six. Yeah. Eh. And, you know, if you're going to get that, it's like, you know, I have most of the Halloween films. I don't have six. And I would pick it up just if it was in one with the original and the uh, producer's cut just so that to be a completist, because I'm just one of those nerds. Yeah. If I, you know, it's it makes me twitchy to have all the set but one in the middle. And you're like, yeah, uh, Even if you don't want it, you'll pay for it just to have it. So this is why you is can continuous. never take up playing Pokemon. Oh, believe me, I have no interest. I played Monster Rancher when that first came out, and I realized that I had a problem, and so I just, I okay, no more Japanese collectible games. Nope. No, sir. Just hentai for you. <laughs> just hentai for me. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, those tentacles. 
Well, going way back, way back, way before Halloween, way before a lot of horror, way into the beginnings of really how we started to tell the ghost story on film, we have the new Criterion horror release of The Innocence, which is a 1961 adaptation of Taming of the Shrew. Or no, not Taming of the, of the Shrew. Screw. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm really <laughs> tired. Uh, taming of the Shrew. Yeah, I would like to see a horror adaptation of Taming of the Shrew. I, it must be doable. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of ideas right now. I'm like, yep. holy shit, why has no one thought of that? Like, where it's like someone, you know, they're training the young street girl how to be like a proper lady, but who's a serial killer. Yep. Yeah. There you go. Uh, so let's, let's. I think go. you're thinking of Pygmalion there. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the same thing. There, no, it's not. Yeah? No. Yeah? Moving on. Okay. Um, Turn of the Screw by Henry James is what this is adapted from, and it follows Deborah Kerr as a basically a hired nanny by a very rich guy who inherited uh, his two his niece and nephew from their dead parents and is like, I'm just, I'm a man about town. I don't have any interest in being a dad. I mean, I love the kids, but I'm just going to pay other people to take care of them. And he's living in London. Here's the nanny to go out to this huge British manor out in the country, just beautiful, incredible house uh, to go and live with them as well as the maid, gardener, the various staff. Although we only ever see the maid. <laughs> like they they say, yeah, there's other staff all over the place. Yeah, we have no idea where those staff are. <laughs> They're not important to the story. They're not pertinent, at least not the living ones anyway. Uh, and she starts realizing that something is very wrong with these children. And she starts uncovering this mystery that involves the previous nanny and the previous gardener, who had an affair together, and a weird sort of psychosexual power over these children. Now, what makes this film as interesting as it is, is A, the lighting, which is, the lighting and the cinematography is phenomenal. The Freddie way Francis, together, Freddie Francis, uh, he defines, like, as you're you saying, this is, this is where a lot of how people start to move from, you know, the kind of universal approach to shooting stuff, to the really kind of moody, uh, almost postmodernist approach to shooting this stuff and I think you know Freddie Francis defines this and this is the film where he really starts to put this in, in you know in concrete terms oh it's there's so many things and shots in here that are just amazing and you can see how people have borrowed so much since then from this film and most of the times you see it it's not done as effectively as you see it here yeah uh, this is the first real evolution I think in in how you tell this kind of story since Val Newton yeah. You know, it really it, it it's a landmark and, and, and in in horror, um, which has become a little bit tragically overlooked. I think I uh, completely which is, agree. Which is a, a real shame, not least I, uh, because uh, Deborah Kerr's performance in this. I didn't even know this existed until last Halloween or two years ago on Halloween. I was deciding I was going to watch uh, all ghost movies, and I was like, okay, I'm assembling my list of ghost movies I'm going to watch. So I was going on, you know, googling top 10 ghost movies ever made. They all had like the innocence in the top five. And I was like, I've never even heard of this fucking movie. Ended up buying the DVD. Or actually, I think it was a gift from a spell fan. Cause <laughs> I was talking about how much I wanted to watch it. Loved it. Seeing it again. Just, there's no comparison. The quality is so improved that so much so that one HD site that I read called it maybe the best black and white upgrade that Criterion has ever released. Yeah. Like it looks and sounds phenomenal and it's genuinely creepy it's can be viewed on two levels you can view it as a just really creepy ghost story that's very bleak and in a way that wasn't typical of hollywood releases this time uh or you can look at it as a sort of psychosexual 
really creepy as well story about a woman going completely batshit insane. And they work on both levels. It, it's also one of the first films that really pushes the idea that children are awful. Yeah. Which was rare. You know, this is 1961. This, you know, children, particularly in British cinema at that point, are all kind of like, call blimey, Captain, can I help you with your shoes? <laughs> um, or, the, or they're terribly polite. Or, you know, it's the Winslow boy or something like that. This, you know, these it's are, all these are really, a day with Mary. This, this is, you know, children as a source of, of evil and of malice. And you've never really seen this and before. And done in a way, way that isn't typical of films that deal with children as products of evil and malice. No. In fact, the children are just, it's the context in which they're acting that makes it creepy. Because otherwise they're just acting like children. Yeah. Um, the kids were not even informed. Like when they were given the script, any parts that had anything to do with what the rest of the story was actually about, what was going on, they were not allowed to read or know about because they were afraid it would affect their performance. They were just told basically act like, you know, Kids are here to have fun and have a good time. When you watch it in the context, it's like, that's fucked up. Yeah. Uh, this being Criterion, of course, it not only does it look and sound tremendous, it's got a lot of extras. Introduce An introduction by a scholar, Christopher Frailing, which looks at the production history, the script, the visual design. Uh, John Bailey, uh, the cinematographer of The Big Chill and Cat People, discusses Freddie Francis' uh, lensing of the, uh, the Innocence, which is certainly, I think, the most, once again, the most remarkable thing about this film. It's just, it's just so gorgeous. Uh, Between Horror, Fear, and Beauty, which is a video program produced by Criterion this year, uh, uh, cinematographer Franny, uh, Freddie Francis, editor Jim Clark, and script supervisor Pamela Mann Francis discuss the production history of The Innocents, visual design and cutting. Freddie the- Francis is still alive? It says he did. That's, uh, somebody needs to give that man. Oh, it says the interview was con- conducted in 2006. It was produced in 2004. Oh, right. So he, like, as of 2006, he was still alive. Uh, and an audio con- commentary by Christopher Frailing again, recorded in 2006. That, uh, about the film as well as, unfortunately, very, like, sometimes you get a book with these things. And this one is just like kind of a leaflet, a little booklet with an essay by a film critic. But hey, what are you going to do? It's still a solid collection. And this was probably my number two pick for film of the week because it's just such a classic. Another, much like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a horror classic that really should be seen by anyone who considers themselves a horror aficionado, just in a very, very different style. Uh, continuing on to horror, we're going to go with one I know you didn't get a chance to see. But uh, we're going to talk about it anyway, which is were. You're going to talk about it. I'm just going to heckle. Here's the thing. There aren't enough good werewolf films. Here's my thesis. They're there. They're wolf. (laughs) They're castle. Exactly. There aren't enough good werewolf films. Just have never been. It's one of the primary movie monsters that has gotten a short shrift in later years. I mean, aside from the mummy, but personally, I'm of the opinion there's never been a good mummy film overall. I think even the original ones are controversial. Like, uh, okay, there's never been a great mummy film. Yeah, you know, the, the werewolves have had their moments in history. They're great. The original, the were, the, the Wolfman, is terrific. Um, uh, of course, Dog Soldiers is great. Uh, 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 the Howling. Uh, what's the big one I'm forgetting? American Werewolf in London. American Werewolf in London. Oh. There, there are several really good werewolves. <laughs> Ginger Snaps. Not American Werewolf in Paris. Ginger Snaps. But, I mean, compared to Dracula or even Frankenstein, it seems like Werewolf is kind of... Like, most people just don't explore it, and partially because it's so much more expensive to shoot a werewolf film. Were is more of a film, like, usually the werewolf film, you've got the huge, big transformation and the giant monster. This is more like the wolf man, or wolf, where it's like a man who t- has wolf, starts growing wolf-like qualities, more like claws and more hair, but and, like, has powers and what have you, but isn't, like, a full-on 
you know, creature, bestial creature. And the story follows... We're talking Teen Wolf here, aren't we? <clears throat> no, he never plays basketball. Although, watching this, he would have been excellent at it. Yeah. Uh, A.J. Cook plays a defense attorney who is called in to defend this guy named Talon, played by Brian Scott O'Connor, who is this intimidatingly huge dude who uh, has, uh, I forget what they call it, the disease where you kind of look like a werewolf, where you grow hair everywhere, and you know what I'm talking about? He's describing me. <laughs> Not now. You don't even have a beard. Oh. Yeah, see, I, I busted you on that. Aww. You know what I'm talking about, yeah. right? Yeah. All right, so he's got that, and apparently one of the conditions is as well is you have very brittle bones, and she's like, he's been accused of murdering this vacationing family, which we see in the intro of the film, you know, from their own video camera as being really graphic and brutal, but you can't tell who's doing it. Uh, she's arguing he couldn't possibly have done it because he's got this condition, and there's no way he could he would be capable of the strength that's displayed here. So the film is interesting in that it starts with really the premise this guy's innocent and there's a real monster out there. Now, I don't not normally want to give spoilers, but I can't really talk about this film without going into what happens next, because that's where the film actually gets to be super fun and interesting, which is that they basically bring him in for testing uh, on the night of the full moon, and he like, and they're testing the condition. And one of the ways you can uh, to test it is with strobe lights because people that condition also have epilepsy apparently. So he goes into epileptic seizure, which means he full out wolfs out and brutally kills in seconds, like like everyone in the room, you know, where there's no doubt anymore. This is the dude, and then goes on a rampage. So. It's them in Paris trying to catch this guy, whole teams of people, and him just taking out, like, black ops soldiers running around like Neo from the Matrix, but covered with fur and claws, Oops. just wiping people out and blood spray, intestines spraying everywhere. And eventually you get more of a sort of, like, you know, uh, guy who gets clawed and is gaining powers versus the, the previous Wolfman fight type stuff. And there's so much stuff in here that should make this a phenomenal werewolf film. However, oops, I realize there's a point you go, okay, we only have so much money, so something's got to give. And one of the things it gives is all of the blood is that cheap, nasty, neon-looking CG gore. Oh. Like, uh, practically every gore scene in here is that. And you're like, it looks so terrible. It's always looked terrible. It's It looks terrible today. What, you, you ruin the entire effect of having a gore movie if you're going to do that. I would rather you not show the gore at all and pull away than do it that way. Or just get some caro syrup. Well, from what Is I hear, that hard? Like, squibs are about as expensive as hiring someone to do the CG. Yeah. So I don't understand what the problem is. No. I, I really don't get that at all. The other problem is that it acts like it's a found footage film, even though it's not a found footage film. Uh, you know what I mean? That, well, that, I mean, and that's one of the things that annoys me is, you know, I love found footage films. You know, I know heresy, but the problem, the problem is a lot. Of, there's too many of them which break their own conceit. If you do it right, if you stick to the conceit, then it works really well. Yeah. But it's it's those moments where you go, oh, I'm going to do a shortcut, or I'm, you know, it's it, there's going to be obviously a third person camera at some point, which doesn't make any sense, and that's what breaks the illusion. That's what makes you think, well, this isn't real after all. And it's like, well, yeah, that's your own fault. So, yeah, if they're playing with it and not doing it actively, you're not selling it to me as a... As <laughs> yeah. Between that and the shit CG. I just, I don't understand. There's a lot of fun ideas here. This could have been the beginning of a fucking franchise, but no one is going to see or give a shit about this film because of how terrible that stuff really looks in this. Oh. Um, I, I'm just baffled. 
by the decision making that was involved because I was enjoying this much more than I wasn't. But it, it just and like I said, the found footage thing with the whole like, why is there shaky cam throughout this whole movie when there is no reason for it to be there? I mean, just recently, uh, we did a review of Annabelle where it was like, it doesn't do that, but it does, like, a lot of the scares use the techniques that they use in found footage movies with the static camera and the negative space. You're like, why are we watching this in a non-found footage film? Mm -hmm. I don't understand. Like, I realize The Exorcist 3 did it first and it worked great, but still. Anyway, Whir is a movie, like, you really like werewolf films. It's worth watching, certainly, but... Whir is a movie. I think we, I think we could Whir. agree on that. Yeah, it's, it's so cheap they couldn't afford the second E. Oh, <laughs> gosh. Well, you know what? Let's move to the birthplace of horror. The, not, maybe not the birthplace, but pretty close. The, the second home of horror. The Universal Monsters complete 30 film collection that unfortunately is only out on DVD. I mean, you can get all they put out last year, the Blu-ray set, which is all the staple ones, the mummy, the where the Wolfman, Dracula, Frankenstein, all the, the invisible man, all that on Blu-ray, which is a great set and so worth owning. This is the staple monsters with every movie that was made from universal, like in the classic years anyway, yeah. uh, from them. And I'm going to, this is, oh, it's a big, hefty set. I want to read as fast as I can all the movies that come in this set. Deep breath. <clears throat> Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Invisible Man, The Bride of Frankenstein, Werewolf of London, Dracula's Daughter, Son of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man Returns, The Mummy's Hand, The Invisible Woman, The Wolfman, The Ghost of Frankenstein, Invisible Agent, The Mummy's Tomb, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, Phantom of the Opera, Son of Dracula, The Invisible Man's Revenge, The Mummy's Ghost, House of, House of Frankenstein, the, the Mummy's Curse, House of Dracula, She-Wolf of London, and this is my favorite part, Abba and Costello Meet Frankenstein, Abba and Costello Meet the Invisible Man, Abba and Costello Meet the Mummy. I love that they have all the Abba and Costello. Oh, see, I love Abba and Costello. I love they have all the horror ones with them. Creature in the Black Lagoon, Revenge of the Creature, which is truly horrible, but totally worth seeing. Uh, and The Creature Walks Among Us. Actually, I already had the sequel to The Creature of Black Lagoon on my Mystery Science Theater set, which ah. is one of my favorite of the new cast of Mystery Science Theater, like the, with the new crow. Uh, it was like the first one on the sci-fi channel they ever did, and it's so good. But anyway, this is a... You know, hey, you know what? I should probably have these films in my collection. Collection. Yeah. How? How's the resolution? Because if you're sticking that many films onto onto what is it, six discs? Well, I mean, ultimately, this is a repackaging. Pretty much everything in here has already been released, uh, and you know, it's it, it, it's weird that there's even extra things on here because there are points there are some of these that have like more than one monster and they and they have it organized by like on the you know phantom of the opera creature in the black lagoon invisible man the mummy like on each set that's packaged in here and some of them repeat the movies so that you have them all complete and that's of course because they plan on releasing them separately of yeah. course eventually but um they look as good as you could like as you would as they're they've been done at this point at least for a dvd transfer uh the only disappointment is apparently uh avon costello meet the mummy revenge of the creature and the creature walks among us are not great transfers well i don't think they were spending a lot of money on the on the negatives at that point so this, this probably is an issue of the quality you know the quality of the source material is not that phenomenal but they say, you oh, know, yeah. this this is landmark cinema uh you know this is going to keep you busy for, for a couple of months there's probably going to be say you know even if you know this stuff 
really well. There's probably going to be more than a uh, more than two or three films that you go. I've never seen that. It's probably worth probably worth me catching just because I've never actually caught that one. Well, one really cool thing I thought about this is the Dracula set comes with the Spanish version, which is very much worth seeing. Which was filmed like literally Universal after they were done filming Bela Lugosi's Dracula like financed a Spanish language production of it with different actors, huh. just flew them out to Hollywood to the set and re refilmed the entire movie there with a different director and different actors. And I've never seen it, but I've always heard it actually is pretty magnificent. Yeah. That it's really good. And that's included well, in the Dracula set. I think Bela Lugosi's grasp of, of uh, enunciating <laughs> English was a little bit a little bit scant. They could have just written stuff on the back of a card and had him do the Spanish yeah, language version as well. <laughs> um, it's also got tons of behind-the-scenes documentary, uh, retrospectives on Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff, Lone Chaney Jr., and Jack Pierce. Uh, 13 feature commentaries, uh, lots of archival footage, uh, production photographs, original trailers, and a ton, ton, ton more. This is a really solid set. You know, it's a, if you're looking for something, if you, I don't know if you give Halloween gifts, if you're one of those people, we don't celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Halloween. Which That'd be awesome. It's not the worst idea in the world. No, I'm down with that. It's, a, it's Halloween Day celebration. Uh, like, uh, jump underneath the, the orange Halloween tree and <laughs> open your presents. But be careful, because one of them is filled with razor blades. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, if you do watch these films in, in order, you can actually see Bella Lugosi getting increasingly bitter. I, I believe that's probably true. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that all but uh, absorbs all the horror stuff that we have for today, although we still have a bunch more titles to talk about, and a lot of that is also genre. So let's jump into one of those genre films in question, uh, which is Petals on the Wind. Oh, the film that Richard basically... No, wait, 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 wait. Oh. The film that Richard basically showed up today to talk about. Oh, my God. So oh. this is the Lifetime movie sequel to Flowers in the Attic, uh, the adaptation of the V.C. Andrews, I hesitate to say classic, but it certainly was popular, uh, book <laughs> that I, everyone I knew in high school was reading, all the girls anyway, and I never read it. I was like, that looks terrible. I'm not going to read that. And I will say that the movie that we watched, Flowers in the Attic, was really awful. Uh, it, wa it wasn't just awful. Um, for those of you who have not been exposed to the joy, I will say, joy uh, of um, Flowers in the Attic, the basic plot line is that uh, you know, this... Through various complicated, ridiculous reasons uh, that actually nobody would care about now, um, in the 1950s, this this woman decides to lock her children up in the attic uh, <coughs> of the the stately, rambling mansion home um, with Ellen Burstyn as the grandmother, just chewing all the scenery. Oh yeah, Heather Graham as the mother, who at this point just looks like just looks weird. She she's had too many facelifts. I'm yeah. convinced of it. And I she think can't blink. They removed her acting ability too. At some oh my god, something happened with this. Uh, come back, roller girl. Um, Seriously. And she might, she poisons one of the kids. The other ones get out by like leaping over a fence. The whole thing. Is let's just, not forget that they have incestuous oh, sex incest. first. Yeah. This is this is this is what really made Flowers in the Attic so creepy that it was so successful that they did. Yeah. When when Virginia Andrews died. They did a whole franchise with people under pseudonyms writing more incest porn. This is creepy as Hades. And this is the second book. And if the first adaptation was stupid, this is 
this is like somebody took the first film and smacked it around the back of the head with a brick and then filmed it again while it was concussed. Well, you know, it feels to me like someone took 20 years of the worst soap opera you've ever seen in your life and compressed it into an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, and added like. ballet. And I mean, that was the thing. This is, this is how manipulative and, and weird uh, the understanding of, 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 of uh, uh, nascent female sexuality is. They added ballet into this because just to make it even creepier. And the daughter who was having a relationship with her brother in the first film ends up in this weird kind of subdom relationship with this with a, a guy in a ballet school. Although it's never established after you know being stuck in an attic for several years and suffering borderline malnutrition somehow now she has the muscle mass to become a ballerina oh yeah they're both perfect yeah like except for the fact that they can't help but sleeping with each other they're perfect and how exactly does the son qualify to become a a, a doctor even though he clearly has no school record by this point sure uh, none of this makes any sense it gets even creepier when the younger sister uh gets gets all upset because the the older brother isn't sleeping with her uh, and there's a lot of people wandering around going, well, how exactly are we going to hide the fact that we've all been having sex? Um, <laughs> just... And to complicate matters, they refine their mom, Heather Graham, who is now getting married to who some rich, successful Who hasn't in ten guy. years. Yeah, 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 clearly. Or she just lives off Botox. Ellen Burstyn has now gone bald and senile and just sits upstairs in the attic going, where's everything gone? I hate you all. <laughs> oh, and there's a dead body up in the attic, which nobody mentions for the first three acts of the film. <laughs> yeah, and is really kind of a minor plot point to resolve another part of the story. A convenient little, like, how... Why did you even leave it up there in the first place? Just kind of baffled by that. And and there are various sequences where the brother and the sister are, are pretty seriously going at it. Oh, yeah. And you're just like... This is... You're right. It's incest this is, porn. This is... Why am I watching this on Lifetime? Why is this happening? And Someone you, call an adult. Like, and as bad as all that sounds, and you're right, it, it, like, if you hear that and you go, that sounds pretty bad, oh, you're absolutely right. It's 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 atrocious to the level of being hysterical. The acting is even worse. Oh, and there's a revenge plot as well. Oh, yeah. There's a revenge plot because the daughter decides... To, oh, get ready for this one, folks. The daughter decides that she's going to seduce the future husband of her mother and get pregnant by him so that she can... Dis I, I, at that point, even I, at that point, this seemed like the worst revenge plan ever. This really is like an ill-considered version of Ocean's Eleven. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and then the, the end, because honestly... You're not spoiling anything for anybody with this. At the end, she and her brother disappear to California to raise her the, the the son she had by her mother's husband while her mother's insane. But there's a point. There, there's there's worth enduring <coughs> this massive boner killing shit show. There's a moment where Ellen Burstyn actually laughs maniacally and just goes, "Don't look at me." I was like, was that in character? <laughs> or did she just go, you know what, even I appreciate that this film is too terrible and too beneath me. I'm Ellen Burstyn. I shouldn't be having to do this. Nothing about this makes sense, apart from the fact that, uh, you know, Lifetime obviously sold a lot of advertising revenue and a lot of copies of this. I think some with a, you know, kind of satirical bent to people for the, they, uh, for the first one. And they went, oh, what the hell, let's go through. And... As the books go on, they're going to make less sense. They're going to be even oh, creepier. I, I Wikipedia all the plots, and I was like, as crazy as in... Like, if you if they had only ever made the first book, I would have gone, I can see how that's a minor sort of gothic horror, poorly written, but still classic in its own way. But the the other books are like, they're insane. 
They make no sense at all. And they get more insane book by book. Like, they're already producing the next two ones, If There Be Thorns and Seeds of Yesterday, which are coming out in 2015. I know you can hardly wait to see them. Oh, my God. I I am fixated by this car crash. It is one of the most spectacularly poorly thought out car crashes. And badly made. That's the thing. Like, they're not even pretending (coughs) this is for people who appreciate stories. It's a cliff notes of, it feels like a cliff notes of a whole series of books. Yeah. You know, it's so, it moves so quickly through this that I'm just like, don't get up and go to the bathroom. You'll miss eight major, but stupid plot points. Uh, And yeah, I mean, this, and it's all creepy. It's all super creepy because there's a point where you're thinking, uh, in other circumstances, this scene would arguably be hot, but it's not because you're going, no, that's that's a cousin-in-law five times removed, and and they're doing something that involves yogurt. I, I'm just creeped out by this. Like, the, the, there's nowhere for this franchise to go, but but straight deeper into hell. And I, I'm kind of fascinated to see how bad it gets. Yeah, I'm it on the is ride. like picking at a cinematic scab at this point. I, I will watch it just to be see how much worse it can get. You got to watch it just to see how angry I get as these ones go. Oh, on. I'm enjoying this. Uh, definitely. I was so excited when they sent this. I was like, Haha, I'm going to make Richard watch this. <laughs> so excited. Anyway, yeah, I you know, unless you're like us and you really just have to see the worst of the worst of the worst, then skip this. But did they even include any extras cuz there were actually some extras on the first one where they tried to justify the, putting this out and it was it was all the female making filmmakers going, "No, it's not creepy and weird at all." And you go, "Yes, yes it is. How was this series successful as a book and why is it successful now?" You know, I don't know. I downloaded a thing that I thought said that if it had extras or I, not. I don't think and there I are any. Check. I think it I think uh, you know, probably I get the feeling they 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 finished making it Picked up their checks, looked at each other, and went. I'll just, I'll see you in a year. Anyone who watches this even understand, who likes these things, understand the concept of extra features. Like, I don't think, I don't think so. Uh, you know, if you were a fan of these books growing up, and once again, you were young, you didn't know any better. You know, then if you're older now, don't watch these movies. They'll just make you feel like you were. Don't, don't encourage them. They'll make you feel like you were a stupid kid. So yeah. don't watch them. <laughs> we, we, who possibly should actually reconsider some some sexual choices in your life? Indeed. Yep. Well, let's move on to something I actually did enjoy, although I thought the hype was much bigger than it deserved, to be sure, is The Signal. And I'm not talking about the A.J. Bowen Signal, which I also enjoyed quite a Mm -hmm. bit, Uh, but which came out in, what, like 2010 or something like that? Uh, I want to say earlier than that. Uh, That was a horror film. This is a... I want to say six, but I could... It was it was it was early in AJ Bowen's career. Yeah, I want to say, uh, I want to say 2006. But this is a sci-fi thriller directed by William Eubank uh, that stars Brendan Thwaites and Lawrence Fishburne. And here's Larry. The, here's the thing about this film: even if you really didn't like it, and I've talked to a few people who didn't, I, I they were the people I talked to were even willing to admit, yeah, it's the still the best alien abduction film in like 20 years. Yeah, you know, I mean, like since maybe the, X, the first X Files movie. You know, it's like, yeah, it's actually, like, got a lot of good stuff about it. I think at its worst, as someone who knows a lot about this and I've seen even these ter- all those terrible films, it's not hard to figure out where it's going. I mean, I, th- I, I told a lot of people, like, really? You figured that out? I was like, it was, it was a matter of conservation of ideas where I was like, it's the only possible answer to what everything is that's going on. And, and that it, seems clear in the first 20 minutes. In part, that's because there's about... 10,000 films going on here. Yeah. This is a this is a movie that changes tone and direction so radically, but it has that that 
central line going through it that you go, okay, well, okay, we're going to divert, we're going to come back. But when you've taken it in 50 different directions and come back, you kind of, yeah, you, you see the direction. But it does it with style and panache. It does. And a lot of energy and a lot of filmmaking ideas. And for $4 million, it looks a lot more expensive than a $4 million oh, hell film. Yeah. Hell. Uh, the idea is three MIT students who are, you know, hackers as well, conveniently, on a road trip to take the, the female, Haley, to California. Uh, uh, Nick, who is Brent, uh, uh, Brandon Thraits, he's dating her. They're having trouble with their relationship because of it. There's someone sort of, you know, are you just trying to get rid of me? That sort of thing. Um, they're in a hotel, and they discover that this hacker, who apparently got almost got them expo- expelled for breaking into MIT servers, has found where they are. And is taunting them with weird emails. They track using hackers' mad skills. I'm told you can't say the word hacker anymore. That that's dated and silly. But I don't know what no, you're supposed no, to no, say. No, no, no. I mean, uh, you know, I think uh, you know, you, I think you have to define black hat or white hat. But I think, but it's still a, a term of art in the industry. All right, fair enough. Uh, they find they they track where the signal is coming from. They find this abandoned house in the middle of Nevada. Uh, they go inside and it seems to be empty, but then everybody gets knocked out. Like all we really see is an. Uh, Haley outside screaming and then being pulled into the air suddenly, which is a really creepy scene. Oh, yeah. But they wake up in, or, or at least uh, uh, Brent, uh, Brenton Thwaites' character, Nick, wakes up, like, strapped to a bed in this medical facility. Like, obviously, as made clear early on, military mel- medical facility with Lawrence Fishburne in a full encounter suit, regularly visiting him and talking to him in that very Morpheus sort of way. You know. But more so. But even more so. This is, he spends the entire movie talking in a low purr and asking kind of like odd probing questions. Uh, he tells them that what they... He's the anti-Morpheus, because Morpheus is, is basically a way to uh, dump Fas- various philosophical concepts to... in really easily. Yeah. Whereas this is like no information, you don't know what he's... You don't know what he's, even why he's asking what he asked. I mean, he starts off by telling him, look, uh, what you found was an extraterrestrial biological entity near the house... Uh, we're here because we have to study you. And Nick starts to figure out why when he removes his blanket and finds that he doesn't have his legs anymore, which he has a pair of, like, alien-implanted cyborg legs that are pretty kick-ass, actually, and uh, which is good for him because he had, I think, mu- muscular dystrophy before, so he was starting yeah. to lose his ability to walk despite being an athlete before. Uh, and he's a little upset. As, as, as it would be. Most people, I'd probably be like, dude, fucking awesome. These are badass. Especially when he finds out they pretty much make him into a superhero. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he is the Flash after that. But it turns into a sort of, can you escape from the facility? And if you do, then where do you go from there? Because the world outside this facility is fucking weird. Yeah. With a lot of weird people in it. So, the mystery, what's going on? How do we get out of here? What happened to the other two people? Is actually pretty interesting. Even... Even with me understanding and being very clear early on what was actually happening, it's still it's like The Sixth Sense. I figured out The Sixth Sense way earlier than most people I knew, and I still thought it was a phenomenal film. This is a really good film that, despite being able to figure it out, you're still going to have a good time along the way. And it's, you know, it, it, like The Battery, it's very much character-driven. Yeah. Uh, and you really feel for this bunch of, of 20-somethings who aren't, you know, snarky or, you know, wisecracking. No. They, you know, you feel there's there's friendship and a bond between them, and the relationship between uh, the uh, between Nick and his girlfriend makes a lot of sense about why they're acting in the way that they are, and it's also really well done. You know, there's a you know before the leg legectomy, 
which is not a word, but it is now. Uh, you really feel this, you know, they're depicting what it's really like to live with you know, a, a muscular condition like this extremely well and extremely sympathetically. Um, and I think that, you know, that was one of those moments where we're like, yeah, they've actually put a lot of, a lot of thought and energy and, and into really understanding what it is they're talking about when it came to the people. And again, it's, it's people driven. And the, you know, the big SF concepts build up over time. Uh, one thing I will give them real, real, uh, props for, um, I talked to the director, uh, earlier in the year, and I said, well, you know, films like this, whenever there's any kind of hacking going on, you are going to get nailed because people are going to go, that doesn't work. You know, it's like, let's, uh, let's upload a, a, a virus to the alien computer using apples. No, Why does that my is- hacking program look like a 3D map of things with a bunch of swirly shit on it? That's not, hacking is lines of code. Yeah. So. And he actually went to his friends who are hackers and are programmers and went, let's make this right. And they went, okay, yeah, no, we'll do that. So it is actually, so it's going to be one of those films that uh, people actually know what they're talking about, uh, are going to watch and not be pulled straight out. Um, you know, it's, shit like that's lazy. It's, it's like CG, uh, CG blood. How it's hard would lazy, it be to know. get the, uh, that information? Because we really don't need to see the big swirly looking silly 3D yeah. video game looking hacking when everyone in the world knows that's not what hacking, that's not what working on computers would look like. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, uh, the, you know, I think that works extremely well here because it really feels like they went, they went. You 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 sense that they went the extra mile on this. There's a real sense of tension. There's a real sense of fun at points as like it starts to open. Like I said, that these legs aren't just replacement legs; they're pretty badass. Uh, and a weird Twin Peaksy almost sort of feel once you get out into the real world that I really enjoyed. Loved Lawrence Fishburne in this. Who is like you said? He's like the anti-Morpheus sort of, like Morpheus's twin evil brother. Yeah. Uh, there's extra features on here. The uh, U-Rank brothers and producer sit down and talk about the making of the film in a commentary. Uh, there is a behind the signal ten minute thing, a look at the production of the film. There's ten minutes of deleted, alternate, and extended scenes. Uh, there's a funny blooper with uh, Lawrence Fishburne that they just call brilliant, where he comes into a room with his case. And the case just opens up and everything falls out of it. And he just stops from it, looks at the camera and goes, brilliant! <laughs> Which is really well, well Everybody I know who's ever had any dealings with Lawrence <laughs> just says that he is the nicest, most giving actor you can ever work with. And particularly, I mean, he really, you know, he's got more, uh, more experience than everybody else in the cast put together. Um, but he doesn't outshine them. I think he pulls a lot back to really, really, you know, bring, a kind of gravitas that you know really works in this part, and he he you know he carries a lot of the high weirdness of this film extremely well, meaning that the other characters can really carry the personality stuff. Yep. And speaking of Lawrence Fishburne, another thing you can Larry. see him in, which people are when you watch the extra features on, they all talk pretty much that about Lawrence Fishburne at length. Like, oh my God, we're working with Lawrence Fishburne. Is the TV show Hannibal, which now has released its second season. On Blu-ray. Now, I was, like, when I first heard they were making a, sh- a series out of, like, you know, the Hannibal books, I was like, oh, great, here we go. And then they went, oh, yeah, but Brian Fuller is, is showrunning it. I went, oh, well, then it'll probably be awesome. So I take back everything I said. Because <laughs> Brian Fuller has, as far as I'm concerned, never done anything I didn't like. Uh, Pushing Daisies, uh, Dead Like Me, Wonderfalls. I never got to see his uh, weird and very different adaptation of the, I think it was The Munsters. With, with I don't a, think many people got to well, see they, that. They only made a pilot, and apparently the pilot tested phenomenally, but the 
the studio demurred anyway because they said it would just cost too much money to make. Yeah. Um, I, it's out there on the internet. You can find it. To interweb. The, the interwebs. You can hack it. Hacksores. Uh, uh, but Hannibal did get produced and it's shocking that this show is on NBC. And it's actually very different for Fuller, who traditionally has made stuff with much more of a wink and a nod and a whimsy. I, I can get a little bit tired of, of his, his, uh, his whimsicalness is very fey. Yeah. Yeah. And I enjoy it, but like, I need to like pushing daisies, the great show that I can't watch in one big marathon. Yeah. You know, I need to take breaks in it because it is so whimsical. Um, well, I, it always felt to me like he was trying to recapture what he did with dead like me. Yeah. But, uh, uh, but which was so perfect. And then even when he bought it back for the, the kind of closing one shot, but he couldn't get half the cast. Right. And that really felt phoned in. And, and for me, that kind of almost, I, you know, I've been waiting for him to move away from that. Right. And this is way away from that. Yeah. Uh, like, it, like the one way I will compare this to previous Fuller projects is that it's very visually impressive and well thought out. Like, things you've never seen before, Fuller shows you on a regular basis. The difference being is here, the things you've never seen before are things no one in their right mind would actually want to see. <laughs> horrible, horrible, haunting imagery of these kills throughout the series that are just, I can't believe it's on NBC. It's goyer than The Walking Dead. You know, by far goyer than The Walking Dead and more disturbing. Uh, the story, rather than following Hannibal as the main character, is actually playing a, uh, the, the, the guy, uh, from, uh, uh, what the hell was his name? Red Dragon. Will Graham, Will Graham, who is a, you know, as you only see in the movies and on television shows, a person who goes to crime scenes and goes into a, sort of a visual hallucination of how, because he's such a genius, he can figure out what happened just by looking at all the pieces. He's a Sherlock Holmes of gore, basically. Uh, you know, suspend your disbelief as you will. It's a, it's a trope we're all familiar with at this point. And it really does work here. We follow his story as he gets to know uh, Mads Mikkelsen, who plays Hannibal, which is not something that was originally in the books at all. They had no previous relationship to him chasing him. Here, we build up in the first two seasons with him, you know, being friends with the guy. And then slowly dawning on him that, you know, the guy who most looks like is most possible to actually be doing all these murders that are going on is Hannibal. Like, not wanting to believe in himself, but when he it finds himself manipulated to a point in the first season where it looks like he is the one who committed the murders. He realizes, holy shit, it is Hannibal. But who the fuck's going to believe him? Everybody else loves Hannibal. They call him in. They go to his dinner parties. Ahem. They, go oh, to, yeah. they, they, they hang out with all the time. One of his, like, I'll uh, just have the side dish. But the second season, Will Graham's ex-girlfriend is now sleeping with Hannibal. You know, everybody likes him. And sure enough, you like him. Even though you know and get to see him kill and serving up humans. You're like, that, I gotta admit, that does look tasty. Yeah, I, well, I'd be put off by the fact that it's Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah. Who is an inherently creepy looking guy. And, and it's a testament to, you know, I haven't caught season two, but I did catch bits of season one, and it's a testament to his power of an actor that they make him look as creepy as possible, but he's still charming. Yeah. You'll still buy into the fact that this guy is, is a, a super genius sociopath. Uh, you've got Lawrence Fishburne here playing uh, the boss, basically, the FBI special agent in charge, Jack Crawford, played by Scott Glenn in Silence of the Lambs, uh, who is, you know, in the first season and into the second where Will's in jail and, you know, the same jail where eventually we know Hannibal ends up in, who is telling everyone, look, I didn't do this. It is Hannibal. He's like, Lance Fishburne's the biggest defender of Hannibal there is. That being said, the very first shot in the season is Hannibal and Lawrence Fishburne fighting and stabbing the shit out of each other and destroying Hannibal's kitchen. So we know 
That shit ain't gonna last. Nope. <laughs> uh, and it's a fun, if not dark and depressing, build up towards that point in the season as we see the pieces slowly falling away from, you know, the, or not the pieces, the mask slowly falling away from everyone's eyes as it starts to dawn on them. It's like, wow, Will actually is making some good points here. And Hannibal doing his brilliant best to try and move pieces around to, you know, okay, well, maybe it's not Will. Maybe it was that guy. And making some really drastic changes from the book, but ones that work yeah. here. That You know, I don't mind them changing the book as long as it's not just to change it. In the context of the story, it does, in fact, work. And they also bring in a lot of characters that you don't see till much later in the series as well, which I, I think is neat, like setting up things that happen... That, that don't happen until, like, the uh, the book Hannibal. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the character right now, but the guy who was kind of the main villain in Hannibal, do you remember that character's name? Oh, boy, no. Uh, well, anyway. I kind I of blanch out after a while on some of them. <laughs> uh, anyway, they bring him in as a character, and he's really fascinating and creepy, and in the, you know, when you see him in Hannibal, he's like a Mason Verger. Uh, oh, yes. When you see him there, he is in in the book and in the movie of that he is you know paralyzed and all fucked up. Here he's like fully active, just a really creepy fucked up dude who has a set of carnivorous hogs he likes to feed, um, and it's sort of figuring out why years later he's going to hate Hannibal as much as he does. As Hannibal kind of fucks him over completely. Well, I love the fact that this series, you know, a it's got some really you know good solid actors, but b they they start to really bring in some. Uh, some very experienced horror people. I mean, we've got an episode where, where you've got Catherine Isabel and uh, Vincenzo Natale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's, you have to know your Canadian horror to know who these people are. But if you do, you're like, whoa, The hang on. weird casting of Scott Thompson as uh, the forensic, the top forensic, you know, uh, medical examiner, which is like, wait, this is one of the kids in the hall and yeah. the most flamboyantly gay of the kid, well, the only gay one of the kids in the hall, despite theories to the contrary that they were all gay. Uh, he's the only actually gay member of the cast and is very hysterically funny about <laughs> being out there. Here he is... It, it definitely in the comic foil, but in a realistic, wor- you know, world. There's a nice extra feature on here, though, where he gets a little interview show where he gets like four minutes with every member of the cast and the directors and the writers gets to sit down with each of them for four minutes and do a very off the cuff, very funny interview with them about their characters, which is an excellent little special feature to have, certainly. But this season, what worked for me about it was I still thought the first season felt a little, uh, it's more linear. This one is uh, jumps back and forth a bit. There's a lot of different like tonal changes in it, and it's going to be very confusing what's actually happening till you get to the end because it sets you up to believe something is going on with Will Graham that is one giant con game on the audience and a very well done one, all things considered. Still an excellent season. Really looking forward to seeing where this goes. Uh, I, in the interviews, they talk about how. Uh, like when they sold the actor who plays Will Graham on doing the show, he was like, I have no interest in this. And then Brian Fuller told him the the arc for the entire first four seasons. And he's like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm I'm totally in. So now I'm like, wow, I can hardly wait to see where this goes. I, I, I mean, that makes the question of how long they can keep this going. Yeah, well, that's the thing is like, that's the question we all have. But like he sold getting the series made on the idea that I got it all figured out. Yeah. But I mean, it sounds like if there's a four season arc, then that makes a lot of sense where, you know, this isn't going to be, you know, I don't think we're going to be looking at Hannibal season 13. And I think when you talk about the violence in this and the the gore, it is amazing. You look back how many shows that are on now, basically 
they would never have happened without... I'm not going to say Silence of the Lambs. I'm going to say Michael Mann's Manhunter. Sure. There are so many things. So, for example, you know, you, you draw a direct line from Manhunter straight to the original CSI through through the cast. This is, you know... So it makes sense this has kind of come back in a lot of... I know a lot of people are like, oh, no, you're never going to be able to get a, a whole TV show about Hannibal Lecter. You're never going to be able to carry it off. Right. Uh, but I, I love the fact that Mickelson has went, you know what, you've got to tone down the crazy. You've got to make him much more of a rounded character and not a kind of weird caricature. And I think that, you know, that's impressive. Yeah, yeah, it really does work. I know some people who don't like the show because they say it's too slow, it's too, like, there's too much just crazy visual stuff, and it is. There's an incredible amount of, like, insane hallucination sequences in here that I find incredibly creepy, but it's not for everybody's cup of tea, to be sure. For me, it totally is. This is, whereas too many TV shows right now in genre are backsliding to doing, like, stuff that we were doing 10, 15 years ago, this is the show that's actually trying something new, that's doing something that's really inventive, that's not like anything you've seen before, and not like anything else that's on television. So so you're saying it's not NCIS Lubbock? Yes, I am. Wow, wouldn't that be weird? Mm. I, I, I admit, if they had an NCIS Austin, I would totally watch that shit, just because it was in Austin. And then but. you'd go, I wish this was CSI Austin instead. <laughs> a friend of mine just made Because you're not 90. Speaking of Austin, a friend of... You know the, the classic, hi, how are you, Daniel Johnston for image a lot yep. of you people out there when he was a musician who was here in town that i still am a little baffled why people like but i you know, i think it was the i call it the birthplace of hipster irony is daniel johnston worship but there's this huge front simple drawing of a frog that says hi how are you well uh the, a friend of mine's making t-shirts now with him but where he's got a raised middle finger and says hey hi how go fuck yourself <laughs> i was like Okay, that's pretty awesome. I kind of want one of those. Anyway, let's move on to another television title that I think is really worth watching that a lot of people aren't even aware exists and in its own way is kind of doing something new that nobody else has done before, and that is Defiance. Now moving on to Season 2. Defiance is... It's by the guy who created Farscape. Yay! Rockne O'Bannon. And you can totally see... Like that. Son of, son of Dan. I did not know that. Son of Dan. I did not know there that. There we go. R.I.P. Dan yep. Bannon. So, so classic. Um, it's uh, produced by Universal Cable Productions, and it is designed to work with an MMORPG of it that work, plays online. I've never played the game. Just talked to somebody last night who does, who's like, trust me, you don't have to play the game to watch the series. It does add stuff not to the plot, but to thickening of the universe. So if you really like this universe, which is the best thing about this show, this crazy detailed universe they've created, then yeah, the game is gonna gonna be fun for you to play. But you're not missing anything in the story. The story as it is is very much it's a western uh in the future where Earth has been radically transformed by multiple new species which have arrived from Earth and uh because of this war that went on between all these species, like exploding technology with various genetic warfare transformed the very nature of the planet where various species are like have mutated into horrible monsters. Which is such a great idea that, you know, you, you always have the, th- you know, terraforming as a concept in, in film, in, in, in a lot of science fiction. But the basic idea is that humanity beats this alien invading empire, but they've already dropped uh, their terraforming equipment on. So Earth is changed but they lost. Right. And, but, but everybody's lost. There is no winner. So this is really like, how do we get together and how do we survive this? And Defiance is the remains of St. Louis. 
Yeah. Which is a great location. Oh, yeah, with, with the, they, the, the, the big arc always in the crumbling in the background. Well, no, because actually uh, that's one of the really neat things they've done. That it, you know, The sign of, like, we're going to rebuild civilization. St. Louis is actually all underground. And when they show St. Louis they uh, in some sequences, it, it's accurate. They did it right. They knew what they were doing. They're actually rebuilding the arch. It's not falling apart. They're putting it back together. Uh, see, it's a sign of realize. like this is what you know. We're gonna we're gonna build build civilization back, which is a beautiful little tiny note because you have to look. There's there's new girders going in place, and it's a frontier boom town in the very western sense of it, and it. It, everything's kind of in chaos because there's all these species that living there. Most of them don't get along all that great together. Some do, some don't. Uh, one race was a slave race to another race and is now free and don't like them at all. This, I mean, and they keep introducing new species we haven't even seen yet because this was a, a mass migration for a whole solar system that exploded of all these different species. And all of them have this one other species who was trying to kill all of them who still shows up every once in a while to cause chaos and trouble. Uh, the main character is Nolan, who is, you know, the, the badass who doesn't care about anybody but his adopted alien daughter, Orisa, uh, who he adopted when he was a small child. But he gets talked into becoming the sheriff, the log, lawgiver of this small town, you know, in classic Western style, and then has to deal with any number of problems. And I will admit that the episode-to-episode plots are not terribly unfamiliar to things we've seen before. There's a lot of sci-fi tropes we've seen in a billion other shows that are thrown in and remixed in a blender and put out here in this universe. What makes it so attractive as a show is the degree of depth that goes into describing this world and what happened to it and, and all these species, and the depth of the characters. Yeah. Every last character in this is given a ton of background and interesting things and has all these like, like chaotic elements around them that, that make their living situation next to impossible that they generally created for themselves. I mean, all of them are sleeping in the bed they made for themselves, but the most interesting is this one alien race that looks all white. They're like the purest, most beautiful race. And they're, they think of themselves as better than everybody else. And they're a very patriarchal society. But when the woman decides that she, you know, in the second season decide, well, I'm much smarter than my husband and he's in prison. So I'm just going to take over his criminal organization and is better at it than he yeah. was. <laughs> well, that causes all kinds of problems. And it is by far the most interesting part of the second season. Like I just, I think their, their whole race is super, super interesting. The other main plot line that's going on here is that, uh, the daughter Arisa got infected by something in the mines underneath uh, the planet that turns out to be an intelligent AI left over from a crashed spaceship from like 6,000 years ago that thinks it's God and wants to terraform the whole planet and kill everyone on it except for its chosen ones, which it infects by basically having her or anyone else who is infected like throw up metal cabling into somebody else, which yeah. not only has the effect where they're controlled by this thing, but they're also ne- damn near immortal. Like, they just heal almost instantly anything as you see the little wires come and stitch their flesh together. And you're like, okay, that's kind of cool. It's a lot of good stuff in the second season. Much more fun. Bear McCreary from Battlestar Galactica uh, composes the music, which is always a good choice for, for a television series composer. Grant Bowler, who is, a, is great as the lead. Oh, Because yeah. he, he's a guy who is smart and he's got a lot of street smarts but keeps being outwitted by everybody yeah he's not that he's he's really not cut out to be martial apart from the fact that he is quite prepared to shoot people in the face well there's a line in here where he's talking to a guy who is dating been dating his daughter who's a young uh black guy who's who's working as his deputy who he keeps stepping on his toes and kind of 
you know, making him keep him calling him kid, and uh, you know, the kid in question is really resenting him for it. And this is the point they kind of come together. He's like, look, you know, I do things my way, which isn't the law way, because I know for sure that my way of getting things gets results. But that being said, if you know what you're doing your way, that gets results too. Yeah. I was like, okay, well, that was a kind of a nice moment. There's a lot of like people coming together and then breaking apart too, because people in this show, main characters die all the time. Yeah. Do they- not get overly committed to anybody because there is, a, this, this has an attrition rate, which is a, one of the things I really like about, <coughs> about Rock Near Bannon's work. I mean, I was a huge fan of Farscape that you really felt there's, people are in peril. They are not going to survive. This is a show that could wipe out its anchors at any time and replace them with new people. But never never just replace them. You get that sense of how do you deal with the loss? Who you know? There is a vacuum created that is going to pull somebody new into its orbit, but there's still a vacuum. And yeah. I, you know, I think he's you know he is for my money. I think the best creator of, of science fiction television at the moment because he waits a long time to, produ- to put something out. But when he does, it is so well thought out. Oh, yeah. So well conceived. There's no idea of like, well, you know, you didn't really know, like, you know, what this corner of the cosmos looked like. You know, when he introduced things in season, in the later seasons of Farscape or even in the, in Peacekeeper Wars, the miniseries, you went, oh no, that works. It feels like it's always been part of this world. Right. And you get that feeling with Defiance. And I really, you know, I think, and Four or five seasons on, if it hangs on that long, I really think you're going to look back and go, oh, right, now that thing in season one that I thought was a throwaway gag, now it makes a lot of There's sense. There's so many things that have been introduced to give this universe depth that they could expand in any number of directions. In five seasons, it may not seem like the same type of show at all, much yeah. like Farscape did. Much like Farscape. Uh, but this, then you go back and you go, oh, no, hang on. Still, but it, it all makes works, sense in context. still fits. It's not like, you know, I love Deep Space Nine, but there are some episodes in season one that I go, oh, they really, you they can had a rough start. the box sets. They had a rough start. Alamorane, count to ten. <laughs> um, this comes with an alternate ending to season one, a gag reel. I love gag reels, always fun. Hannibal, by the way, also has a gag reel, which is funny just because it's called a gag reel. Oh, look! Here's uh, a kidney. Uh, uh, deleted scenes, and the best thing on here is a, uh, uh, the Lost Ones minisodes, which were put out online, which is Nolan looking for his daughter with a sort of like 20 minute mini story. It's like, oh, you get like kind of a half extra episode basically which is nice uh so really recommend defiance good stuff next up we have neighbors which you did not get to see in the theater i did and i read one review of this that was actually really interesting where he said look when it comes to comedies like there's no middle ground for people with this type of comedy we're gonna be ribald we're gonna be like you know throw in everything uh lots of sex jokes and drug humor and either you really love this kind of stuff when it's done well or you just can't stand this type of movie at all you know i I can stand this kind of movie i can't stand seth rogan this is the movie that has finally proved to me that i cannot tolerate him that i think he is grotesquely unfunny that he just sits and stands there and goes, I'm fat and I'm going to say fart. And I'm like, yeah, that is not enough. See, Seth Rogen is one of those guys who, like, every time I think I'm about to stop liking him, will do something I like. Like, this is the end. Totally brought me back. I was like, oh my god, that movie is so fucking funny. And Seth Rogen's so funny in it. This is more along the lines of Seth Rogen being irritating because, honestly, the script here doesn't really give a lot, lot of thought to people 
staying in character as we designed for them. And the idea here is that Seth Rogen and Ross Bur- Rose Byrne are a young couple, We've got a new daughter. They used to be a party couple. They partied hard in college, but now they're becoming reluctantly grown-ups. Uh, they, you know, like, oh, we've got to be concerned about all different type of things. That they, You know, they even have trouble finding time to have sex. Uh, but... Yeah, can, can we can we never see uh, uh, Seth Rogen have sex ever again? Yeah, can we just not see his ass? Not ever? even as the Green Hornet. I don't no. care. Um, but when a frat house moves in next door, led by honestly the most charismatic guy in this film, Zach Efron, surprisingly enough, I, I got a candid to Zach. He should have gone nowhere. Yeah, he's genuinely talented, and there's no question he's startlingly attractive. That is a that is a handsome, handsome man. Yeah, like wow, I'm almost a little creeped out at how good looking that guy is. He's actually got a real career in front of him, and this film pr- proved to me that he's got real a real comic sensibility. Yeah. Because as this guy who starts off just wanting to be friends with these people, when they start doing the stuff they agreed not to do, which is call the cops when when there's a party, it means war and. You know, he's as disappointed as, you know, he's truly disappointed. He's like, I actually liked those people, and now I'm going to have to fuck with them. But then, you, you, you know, what he does well, apart from having a good sense of, of comic timing, is that he gets steadily weirder and creepier because you realize, you know, this guy is, he's the president of the frat. He's the president of the frat because everybody likes him. He's not particularly bright. There's a really heartbreaking moment where he, he tries to go, oh, I'm going to go try and get a job. And the guy from AT&T goes, no, <laughs> you're too stupid. Yeah. And that's like, ow. And, and that's, part, that's part of the problem with this film. You're kind of supposed to feel some sympathy uh, for, the, for the couple. But they're awful and annoying. Yeah. I couldn't stand them. And the, you know, the frat... Are awful annoying in kind of fratty way, but in but, a predictable, understandable yeah. way. And you actually have you know a slight reunion of, of the remake of Fright Night with uh, Christopher Mintz-Plasse and Dave Franco, who you know I are, are genuinely nice guys. I've met yeah. both of them, and you know Dave Franco is really understatedly good in this. Yeah, you know after always being kind of the kind of wild and crazy guy and all in so much other stuff, here he's actually the voice of moral reason. And he's really good, and he really, you know, him and Efron, the best scenes are those two. Oh, yeah. Two friends who are being manipulated by these horrible people next door into hating each other. And then realizing, you know, okay, we actually do have real issues with, with our relationship. And I actually was like, I'd watch more of that. I'd, I'd watch, watch more that of that film. story, but it's made much less interesting by our continuing focus on this married couple who are truly not interesting and, in fact, not very likable at and, all. And Rose Byrne's terrible in this. She you is. Know, Rogan, Rogan is, is bad in I this. Mean, I don't Rose think Byrne is abysmal and did not... I don't think she even read the script. I don't even think I had a problem with the actors so much as the script is not written for them at all. It's like the writers... It's not written for anybody. It's like the writers didn't like them, you know? But that's not how this movie is presented, is the problem. This is like a... I, I, this could have worked better with a a different cast, and b you go full out black comedy, something like. In some ways, it reminded me of Duplex. Okay. The Danny DeVito. Um, God, uh, I don't even remember that. It, one. Uh, basically, it's Drew Barrymore um, and um, oh God, Zoolander. Um, they get a duplex, and they've got an old neighbor upstairs who they they steadily try to kill. And they're very much this kind of like you know stereotypical yuppie couple um, doing horrible things. But it's so pitch black that you're kind of you're on board with it. Here you're supposed to like them, but they're awful. Yeah. And I'm like, well, why should I be invested at any point? And the jokes aren't that good. 
Uh, oh, good. There's, yeah, there's, a, there's a moment where they un, where they get into somebody's room because they realise the combination lock is four twenty, <sighs> and they they make such a big thing of this, and it's like it's not funny. I will say though that there are some genuinely funny moments in this film. Uh, the the most funny scene in the whole film is a, a physical fight between Efren and Rogan, which I had me holding my stomach laughing at points. It was it, because it defies what you expect. From Zac Efron. Yeah. As like this big, powerful frat guy. You're like, that works. It's funny because of Zac Efron, that scene. Yeah. Who, like I said, is nobody gives him enough credit. We're going to see him go on to try more interesting he is, stuff. He's going to, someone's going to give him a good, meaty role, and he's going to be, I, th- I think he's, it's like Jake Gyllenhaal. Like, suddenly you're going to realize, like, oh, he's got real chops. Is, is it time for a remake of American Psycho? Well, yeah, but if only if you put all the class consciousness in that uh, they took out of the film and, uh, you know, uh, you know don't, don't. We, we, oh, we, go, we go down on my, on my American Psycho tirade and that never wins me any friends. So uh, let's just leave that one be and move along. As expected with this type of comedy, there's a lot of bonus features. I like this one thing that's a quote from the first one, an unlikely pair from Seth Rogen, where he says, I met Zac Efron several times in the Hollywood circuit, as they call it, and he was a nice guy. And I remember what I was impressed with was that he seemed very aware that I would probably hate him, which is, like, pretty accurate with, like, how people feel about Zac Efron. Like, on the whole, people would just, like, associate him with just this guy who did used to do this sort of thing, and they don't expect anything else from him. Um, it's funny to me that he is self-aware of that. Yeah. You know, that he's like, I don't want to be that guy. I want to move on. I want to expand. I want to be more interesting. And it's kind of, this is about, that a whole sequence about that, which is cool. There's a, uh, a look where they talk about the fraternity. There is a thing, the filmmakers and actors are just upselling the movie called Partying with the Neighbors, t- talking about the premise. There's 13 minutes of deleted alternate scenes. There's an on the set with, which is basically about the prosthetic penises in the movie. Uh, alternate opening, which is seven minutes long. Oh, God, I'd, f- I'd forgotten the prosthetic penises. Uh, oh, Rama, no. which is three minutes. And then a bunch of outtakes crack up. So like many boring dildo jokes. Indeed. Yeah. Our last film for the day is, and our giveaway <laughs> is The Dead 2. Yeah. Now, you might remember from a while back, or maybe you don't, that we reviewed The Dead, which was a very interesting uh, idea of moving the zombie apocalypse to Africa. Yeah. And telling that story there. Sierra Leone, wasn't it? I'm sorry? Was it Sierra Leone, I do believe? I don't remember offhand. I think it was. This moves the setting to India, but you've basically got the same movie. Um, it is a slow zombie moving zombie film, but in a very poor culture that is doesn't know at all what to do about this and is just being overrun with a decent amount of gore. Uh, a, um, you know, an interesting main character who doesn't get a lot of depth, but they have an actor who has enough charisma that you like him in the role and you want to see what he's doing as he's trying to make it to the main town you know three hours away to find his girlfriend who's an indian girl whose parents want him to have nothing to do with her because they're a traditional indian family and save her as he it dawns on him that like it or not the zombie apocalypse is happening and then eventually his relationship along the way the sort of road trip zombie movie with this young indian boy like streetwise indian boy who he saves from the zombies and forms a sort of bond with uh I can't say that there's a lot here that we haven't seen before, but that doesn't stop it from being a really well-produced, well-done version of what we've seen before, just in a foreign country. Yeah, the I mean, the first film, you know, putting it in Africa, and and the idea is that you have these large expanses of nothing, and the opening shot is one of the, is a turning point, I think, in in how people show zombies because guys walking across the desert sees this zombie shambling towards him with a, this weird, grotesquely misshapen leg. And the guy goes, well, I 
It's not going to catch up with me and just keeps walking. Yeah. Um, and you're like, ah, that's logic. And you kind of get that in the same, in the same here. It's the same, uh, the, the, the brothers who made the first film make this. This time, rather than it being a, uh, a soldier who survives a, a, a helicopter crash, this guy is actually working on, um, wind turbines. So he's not a competent military guy. No. He kind of, you know, he's kind of got a few ideas of like how not to get killed. And, you know, he works out, well, okay, if I punch a zombie in the head, it's going to fall down. Yeah. Um, he does do a couple of stupid things that there's a moment where he leaves a crowbar behind and I'm like, keep the crowbar. Um, what this does that's really the opposite of the first one is go, let's take a, a country that not is that a, we haven't had a zombie movie in before, but B it's not big, empty wastes. This is one of the most, this, this is potential for three billion zombies. This is a packed environment. This would be and that's really- ground zero for, you know, the zombie apocalypse taking over the rest of the world. Hello, Ebola. Yeah. Just saying. Uh, and it, in, it never really explores that, but like past a sort of mention of like, people are leaving on planes. Uh oh, what do we do if somebody leaves on a plane that's infected? But it's not about that. Yeah. But and there's a little tie into the first film where somebody mentions that the you know, patient zero has basically come all the way across from, uh, from Africa on a, on a, uh, a crew, on, on a, uh, commercial ship. Um, you know, it's it's I, it's not as good as the first one, but I think the first one really, you know, that's a that's a kind of lightning in the bottle idea. Um, but it has fewer very weak spots. There's a True. couple of moments in the first one where they do things that they couldn't really afford to do, um, like oh let's ha- let's have a shot inside a military base. Well, they didn't have the money to do that, so it looks a little bit crappy. Uh, they avoid the mistakes they made in the first one, uh, and again, it's it, there's a couple of really interesting moments where you go. Okay, if you're in this situation and you know that there's no easy choice, what do you do? And there's a moment where he he has to make a decision about whether he's going to help a family that's been in a car wreck or not. And the decision he makes is very sensible. But it and you think about it and go, yeah, that's what I might do as well. It's not the traditional hero decision no. at all. It's a very, and that, that's a moment where, where again I go, you know, this is why I think zombie films are still relevant and still have something interesting to say. That you can put people in a very, very difficult moral situation and have a, a moment where you go, would I actually do that? And that's where this film works, I think. You know, the trek across across India is kind of fun. The kid oh, yeah. is pretty, you know, is, is actually precocious and interesting. Yeah. Um, you you get various moments where where people who are also trying to escape do equally dickish things. Um, the, you know the the resolution the the final scene. I think some people may be a little bit frustrated by, hmm. um, but it you have to. It, it's a callback to something that happened earlier. That you ha- if you miss that you you may have to go back and go. Oh no, hang on, that was what that was about. Right. But for me, that worked. Uh, you know, I watched it with my wife and we discussed that ending, uh, afterwards and we're like, oh yeah, no, hang on. Yeah, I get, get where that was really going now. Although we still had different takes on what it meant. Um, yeah, and this, you know. It's a pretty solid little zombie this a, film. This is a, this is a solid zombie film. If you, you know, I think it makes a, a great pairing. You know, if anything, you need to go back and get the first one as well and watch this with it <laughs> because they, you know, they, they do add something new and fresh to the genre. Uh, and you can win this. Yes, you uh, can. And what you do is you follow at one of us net on Twitter, and you are going to tweet at us with 
Ooh, well, um, it'll be hashtag dead to giveaway. And the, you know, the, the first film was set in Africa. This is set in India. Uh, which country would you like to see a zombie film set in? Uh, you know, there's still plenty out there. I mean, I, you know, I, I, we don't think we had anything in Morocco yet. Uh, you know, so just that. I think this, you know, that's a, a good test of your geography knowledge, limited as it may be. And no, you can't say England. We've all done that. You can say Wales or the United Kingdom because we've still got Scotland. But, you know, I, you know, good addition to the, to the genre. And uh, anybody who wins this, I think, will be extremely glad to have it in their collection. Indeed. Well, that does it for this week on Digital Noise. Thanks so much for joining me, Richard. Yeah, thanks for having me, as always. I'll be back next week with Brian with a slew more titles, probably more horror. I haven't even looked yet, but, you know, it's October. <laughs> That's the best thing about it is all the horror they send us. To. More this horror. This is Halloween. This is Halloween. More horror on home release than there is in the theater these days, which oh, is weird. Oh, because, you know, idiots. Yeah, idiots. Anyway, uh, as usual, no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. Bye!